Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. Tell they were rich. It's all so classy and understated. I'll make it up to you later. Make it up to me now. Let's find a room. They must have a few. You're so bad. It is what rich, entitled people do when threatened. They conceal the ugly truths to protect themselves. The community is in shock tonight over the gruesome discovery of a fourth-grade mother found bludgeoned to death. Hello and welcome to Still Watching. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. What we usually do on the show is Richard and I, you know, very sensibly pick one show at a time to watch kind of obsessively, break down week by week. We got a little overlap here in uh, fall of 2020. We are wrapping up We Are Who We Are. We've got two more episodes of that left, but we are also starting The Undoing, uh, this new thriller from uh, HBO. Uh, Richard, do you want to tell the people why... I mean, you seem to think this is the most obvious show for us to cover. Tell me why we are uh, perfectly suited to talk about The Undoing on this podcast. Well, I mean, we have never we've never really done it before, but I think Vanity Fair as a publication is trying to get like kind of break into the rich people scandal territory. Oh, we've, ne- we've never really new, covered that beat before. Us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, come on. This is like classic. There would be a long, really juicy article if this was a real story in Vanity Fair. In the print edition, like without a doubt, you know, <laughs> like yes, well written, well researched. You know, we're not; it's not trash, um, but uh, society <laughs> tragedy and scandal. That's that's definitely a Vanity Fair beat. And I also think, I mean, we had planned to cover this show before uh, we had watched any of We Are We Are, but like I think after that, very like there's some heavy lifting required to kind of to cover that show. I think that this is just going to hopefully be. I have only seen the first episode. Hopefully, just be fun with some added you know social commentary yes and this is a return of like kind of an old richard and joanna dynamic which is that richard's gonna be watching the show week to week uh and i have seen at least the first five so i will i will be holding stuff back as richard makes some very informed guesses uh based on this week's episode what he thinks is happening this is a murder uh if you haven't watched the episode yet we will just be covering episode one but this is we're we're here to solve a murder. How fun. Uh, you know, how fun for us. What a fun, sexy time for us. Um, we've got a couple interviews. We've got great interviews this whole season that we're covering the undoing. You'll hear from everyone. We got Hugh Grant, we've got Nicole Kidman, blah, blah, blah. We've got got all the folks. Um, but this week we will be hearing from the director of every episode and um, you know, an EP on the show, Susanna Beer. And then we will also be hearing from uh, Matilda DeAngelis, who plays um, Elena Alves, the uh, the victim in question. Uh, have we makes... had an Oscar winner on Still Watching before? We must have. Kate, Kate Blanchett, of at course. least. Right. Two-time uh... <laughs> Oscar winner. Yes. Um, we've, we've had a few here and there, but um, this is definitely like a, a you know, a, a beautiful starry cast for us to get excited about. And Susanna Beer, I think, was like a big draw for both of us um she is probably best known for her work on the night manager and also bird box like for american audiences um but she's just an incredible filmmaker and it's it's really fun to see you know someone with a a strong vision as she has uh take over an entire season of television right yeah and she does you know i think she's a she's a really uh thoughtful filmmaker but also 
And this is absolutely as hard as making the tiny, you know, inscrutable indie. She's good at like glossy, compelling television, as the night manager proved. Um, So someone who has a sure hand with that in a way that maybe as much as I like her, Andrea Arnold did not have with season two of another Nicole Kidman HBO project, Big Little Lies. Um, From what I've seen of episode one, uh, Susanna Beer is a great fit for this kind of elevated soapiness. A um, couple other Susanna Beer projects that I'm a big fan of, uh, the film Brothers. There was an American remake, but the original um, yeah. that she did in After the Wedding, which there's also an American remake of. But yeah. um, she, those are some incredible films uh, that she made uh, that you might want to check out if you want to be a more of a beer uh, completist. But um something that you know we'll we'll get you know once again i i have i have a bad habit sometimes of like spoiling my inter- own interviews and you'll hear susanna talk about this a bit more but when this project was brought to her like david e kelly who uh you know is is a very famous t- tv creator but uh most recently best known for collaborating with nicole kidman on big little lies um nicole kidman and david e kelly came sort of prepackaged to Susanna Beer with this project, another project based on uh, a novel. Uh, this one is 2014's You Should Have Known by Jean Hanf Korlitz. Uh, and so, you know, this is this is a sort of natural companion to Big Little Lies. But what's interesting is this project came to Susanna and she, you know, she read what they had so far and she's like, what if we made it more of a whodunit, more of a thriller? And less of, um, I think, the earlier version of this, uh, the way she tells it, uh, you weren't wondering who did it. You were just sort of trying to figure out, just just experiencing the awful aftermath, I suppose. Mm. And so, uh, you know, and, and I think it, it goes to your point that Susanna has an, a, a good sense of um, sort of commercial fare, that it was just sort of like she decided to give us the gift <laughs> of a of a week to week uh who done it right that's mm-hmm. a gift for us to obsess over to theorize over etc um that so, could carry us yeah. from one era to another <laughs> i don't you know, know what or you could be referring carry to. us into a sustained you know horror um <laughs> we'll just have to see have you seen that episode by the way do you know who wins the election <laughs> i'm just going week to week I didn't get those screeners. Um, all right. So uh, this, you know, we are centered on a very, uh, you know, upper echelon uh, circle of privilege in New York City. Uh, at the heart of it, we've got Grace Frazier, played by Nicole Kidman. Her husband, Jonathan Frazier, is a very charming um, oncologist, children's oncologist, pediatric oncologist. Um, and their son, Henry Fraser, play, is played by Noah Jupe, who is an actor that both Richard and I have gushed over on other podcasts. So, um, and then, and, and, uh, Grace's father is played by none other than the great Donald Sutherland. So, you know, as Franklin Reinhardt. So, you know, just, just, just a few well known actors here slumming it, um, on, on TV these days. Um, and and then the circle around them, just incredible talent. Lily Rabe, who's I'm a you know, I'm a huge fan of everything that she does. Edgar Ramirez. When I talk to him, we, you know, we'll hear his interview later in the season. But when I talk to him, I let him know that the first still watching we ever did was on um, the assassination of Johnny Versace, where he played the titular Versace, of course, which feels like a very long time ago uh, that we started this podcast, Richard. <laughs> Um, yeah, that was what ten years ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then a few, a few, uh, a few folks who might be not as familiar to people, um, including in this episode, we've got Matilda De Angelis and um, Ismael Cruz Cordova as Elena and Fernando Alves, who are uh, from a less privileged family that are nonetheless sort of wrapped up in this circle of privilege, uh, thanks to a scholarship to a certain school. So, um, and maybe more, maybe less, we will find out in the oncoming weeks. Um, Richard, Mm. how was your first dip in the pool of the undoing? Oh, it's fun. You know, I, I had seen this first episode months ago, um, partly because we were kind of auditioning it or whatever, not that they cared about, about to, for doing this podcast, but just because like when the screeners came in, I was like, ooh, fun, like murder mystery, Upper Upper East Side. Um, so I re- I waited a, a bunch of time and then rewatched it to record this episode. And it really actually kind of deepened for me because like I think the show does have like 
a lot of interesting and apt detail, you know, about the kind of milieu it's set in. Um, I think as someone who has been in New York during this whole quarantine for the most part, and yet have I really been in New York? I've been in, well, two apartments essentially because I moved. <laughs> but um, so it was fun to like essentially get on the four train and take it up to the Upper East Side. And also, you know, you mentioned Lily Ray, but like Maria Dizia and uh, in one ep- in one scene in this episode, Tracy Chimo as um, uh, Grace's uh, patient or neurotic serial uh-huh. serial mon- uh, monogamous patient like it's basically like the casting director just went you know below 42nd street and went to hit every theater with a butterfly net and just scooped up a lot <laughs> of great new york theater actors uh and put them in this so that's so i feel even though i'm not at a theater uh or wandering the streets of manhattan i do feel like i'm in new york which literally i am but i feel spiritually i am again yeah it's um it's interesting because um, there's this idea of uh, I don't know no I, I like once again I don't want to spoil future conversations but I think the reasons why New York is a setting for this show will only become clear as as the weeks go on but it is it is a nice interesting um, you know Big Little Lies you know it, it'll be inevitable to compare this to Big Little Lies so we're just gonna do it sometimes um, but that's you know that's a California wave crashing show mm. and this is a chilly fall taxis um, honking show yeah taxi honking show yeah um, you know uh, chilly chilly walks through through you know the, through, through the streets of, of New York show and that's interesting and I think the um I guess I guess what I would say is like pay attention to the way in which um people traverse New York and the and the circles of privilege and the circles of non-privilege and how they intersect and how they don't um is something that I think this show is really interested in. So. Yeah, and I I'm not, I don't want to out her. I won't say her by name or what school she's at, but one of my very good friends um from college uh teaches at a very Tony prep school on the Upper mm. East Side. Mhm. And when I saw that this episode months ago, I was like, blank name, name redacted. <laughs> you have to watch this because you're going to scream. You're going to jump out of your skin because it's going to be so familiar. I love the line about, uh, we love our teachers. And then um, Hugh Grant's not character enough is like, not enough them. to invite them, which is so <laughs> true, by the way. Like, like yeah. absolutely. Like, we love the teachers, but we do not want their rumpled, poor, like, actually kind of poorly paid selves in these mansions. Um so not only is it a New York show, but at least in this first episode, I like that it zeroes in on a particular sub, you know, microcosm of New York City or whatever, like a substrata or sub ecosystem, um, because that's a good way to tell a bigger story about New York economy with a with a focus. Um, I think that's uh, pretty shrewd. And what's really fun in this episode is you have this, like, you know, these circle of um, Reardon is the name of the school, these circle of Reardon moms, right? And obviously the Elena character comes into this uh, auction planning tea and she's very out of place there and does something that at least the Grace character interprets as like a, hey, notice me, I'm here sort of uh, move. But um but that these women, as obscenely privileged as they already are, are gossiping about this house where the auction will take place. This is another even higher echelon of privilege. Uh, there are Hockneys on the wall. Uh, I can't wait to get inside uh, Suki's closet, like, is this whole thing. This idea of, like, that there's an even higher level here that they feel on the outside of, um, which I think is is interesting. Did you also take note of where that was filmed? No, where was it filmed? I believe that was the top floor of One World Trade, where Vanity Fair is headquartered. That sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Based on some of the wood paneling. So yes. it's an office building made to look, the top of an office building, the observation yeah. deck essentially, made to look like an apartment, which I think is funny, but you can also film a lot of things there. And I think I, mean, I could be wrong, and, and people should yeah. email us if I am wrong. But um, but uh, yes, I think that that sense of... There's always another Jones to keep up with. You know, there's always right. this climbing, climbing, climbing. Who knows when you get to the top? Is that succession? You know, like, is that <laughs> is that right. the terminus of it? But even then, no, because they have, you know, politicians the whose pierces. palms they need yeah. to grease. It just yeah. never ends. 
Yeah, it's true. And this idea of, of um, Nicole Kidman as like uh, in this circle, but outside the circle. And Susanna will talk about this. But like, you know, let's let's talk a little bit about Nicole Kidman's style in this. A lot of people uh, who are fond of Nicole Kidman's body of work have gotten, I think, rightfully extremely excited to see her sporting the red curls uh, from her, like the beginning of her career. I don't know. I feel like we haven't seen them since far and away. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, and she's, she's got this kind of like bohemian style that is at least slightly at odds with, um, you know, what the other women and moms are wearing. Um, did that, did that strike? Uh, did, well, did that stand out to you at all? Do you feel like, they are – well, a- another thing that makes her slightly outside, I would say, is that she's definitely nicer than a lot of the other judgmental moms that she's friends with, right? Like that's supposed to be yeah. something that we really witness in her immediately in her treatment of uh, the Elena character. Or she fancies herself nicer. Sure. You know, exactly. Like who knows? I don't yeah. really know where the character is going to go. But like, um, you know, I think there are – Lots of people, myself included. I'm the good kind of blank. I'm not the bad kind of, I'm not the bad kind of white man. I'm the good, you know, like, like, and I think she's like, I'm the good totally. kind of rich white lady, you know, and totally. I, I don't know. But, but yes, I think there are enough interesting details um, from the way she's dressed. I Something that, which I may be a little more attuned to than, than fashion would be uh, the home and mm. the kitchen in particular, yeah. which like has this, it's not the sleek, we update this thing every four years kind of kitchen. The island, if you want to call it that, is just a big table. It's not, Joanna, it doesn't have a sink in it. It doesn't have a dishwasher in it. It's <laughs> Nancy just, Myers would never. <laughs> it doesn't have a br- breakfast bar seating. I mean, it's just a table, you know? And so like, clearly that would be a great violation of, you know, accepted house style from some of their other parents at the school or, you know, whatever other circles they run in. But like, so clearly there are some signifiers, um, both in what she says and what she's surrounded by or dressed in, um, that would indicate her not as an outsider to the extent that, um, our poor murder victim is, but, um, but certainly, uh, is a good, at least somewhat outside of that world. So we can kind of, as the viewer can latch onto her and follow her through it. But belongs fundamentally down to her bones, I feel, because her father, as played by Donald Sutherland, seems to be extremely, extremely rich. You know yeah. what I mean? So, yeah, he's like, at the party. Have, yeah. Yeah. They have plenty of money, but, like, they don't donate to the school. Her father donates to the school. So, like, I imagine right. he has even more obscene amounts of money, uh, would be my guess. So, right. And we don't know what the father does, but we do know what, what – um uh grace and jonathan do and they're both doctors or they're carers you know and so they can say oh yeah we're really rich but like you know he's a child oncologist and i help people with their mental problems so like we have a ton of money but like we've earned it an honest way and it's like (laughs) yes you might have but like where did the family money come from you know i really do feel like that i i really i'm glad you brought up that interpretation of like her kindness because um i i really related in an uncomfortable way to that scene where she's like well, she was breastfeeding. And I feel like it was her way of being like, I'm here, I'm a mom, I'm working. And I'm like, I kind of like, yeah, that's a way to feel like I'm really progressive and cool and kind and understanding. And I'm not going to judge this woman for breastfeeding. I, I like we were being snobs. So she was like, you know, being down to earth. Um, but let's talk about the what we get from Elena in this episode before uh, the episode ends with her uh, death, um, is three interactions, right? We get the the tea, the planning tea, the the auction itself, and then uh, the the locker room conversation. And at least two, if one might not argue, all three, um, she is, and I, I promise I don't mean this in a judgmental way, like weaponizing her body, um, you know, an incredible body, but using it in a way that it is like definitely a source of power for her. And I don't, I don't, once again, maybe I sound like Nicole Kidman here. I don't, I don't like, I don't mean that in a judgmental way. It's just like, it, it is what she's doing, which is interesting to me. And it's, but it's not in like a, uh, a, a like kind of, um, 
a way a very a much trashier version of this story might do where you have a, a woman who strikes us as like incredibly like crass in some way i don't see that in her i just see someone who's who seems very uh sensitive emotionally vulnerable and like trying to find a, a place or a place of connection but also maybe trying to like unsettle um grace i'm unsure i don't know what what is your read on this on this one episode we get with with elena well it's i mean it's hard to get much from her directly it's it the episode is structured in such a way that it's about people's impression of her which it's obviously intentional because they have to piece the murder together right as Mm -hmm. the episodes go on um but you know i think grace is clearly trying to be more roundly understanding of 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 Elena as a person, but even she, along with her, you know, the other thing about her being like the nice one, she's still friends with people like right. Sylvia. So she's like, it's like <laughs> if your friends are all kind of awful, like you're at least at the very least complicit in that. But but yeah. they all kind of seem to view her as like an outsider who they have to uh, tiptoe around, be polite to, try to make feel welcome. And they're not wrong about that exactly, and at least in terms of making her feel welcome. But they assume a kind of weakness because she doesn't have the money. Right. Where it's oh, like, well, we don't know. Scholarship, right? They right. They keep saying, like, right? Like it, a, yeah, like, like yeah. because that's part of the, you know, like, as Jen... Um, as Janelle Maloney's character says in that very funny, like, opening speech to the, you know, charity auction, like, um... Uh, we our number one mission. Uh, we want to be synonymous with diversity, and diversity. then you look at the crowd, and it's like not diverse at all. And you know, um, <laughs> but I think that what these women are assuming, and so many people, you know, looking uh, down from a, a class perspective, uh, assume a sort of like naivete or a helplessness or whatever. Um, but in private moments, clearly. Elena has a lot more inner life and agency than any of these women are, would, would ever be willing to, to grant her, you know? And I think that that juxtaposition is set up really well, that they are pitying her and condescending to her at the same time, and yet um, potentially are failing to see um, an entire person that um, has set all of this in motion. Yeah. Um, let us go now to our conversation with Matilda and and hear her take on Elena. And I'm I'm curious um what about this project in particular were you most excited about when you joined? <laughs> I was excited pretty much for everything about the show. I mean, um, I think the project speaks for itself. So uh, written by David Kelly, directed by Suzanne Beer, and with this amazing cast working with Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. It's, it's I mean, it's been a dream for me. So I was, I was super excited, I was super excited about pretty much everything about the show. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've, I've had so much fun talking to everyone about Susanna's process, which sounds yeah. so different to me. What was there about her process that you liked best? Well, I found very interesting Working with Suzanne, uh, it was my first time working with a female director. And I have to say, um, women do have a different sensitivity and Suzanne in, gen- in, 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 in particular. So um, she's very demanding and she knows what she wants. And um, she's a tough director, I have to say. And she always pushes you to the, ex- to the extreme of everything. Um, but, um, the process with her is is always very interesting and very funny as well. Um, she enjoys very much to be surprised by you and, um, she's really empathetic. So it was a great pleasure working with her. Can you talk a little more about the sensitivity that you mentioned? I mean, especially since, 
um, your character is, is very vulnerable and exposed in this, in this episode yeah. here. Yeah. Yeah, it is. My character is very vulnerable and exposed and it has a, an important sexual component, which is very predominant in the show. And working on, 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 on this specific part of my character with a female director was really interesting and, and made me feel very comfortable about myself. And um, I felt in a safe space completely. And, um, and so her look, her female gaze, uh, it's been very important for me. And uh, that kind of sensitivity made me feel very comfortable in everything I was doing on set and outside and behind the scenes. Everything was really, really, really comfortable for me. What, you know, to to that end, that vulnerability, what's your interpretation of this locker room encounter between your character and Nicole Kidman's yeah. character, Grace? What, what do you feel like is going on there? A lot is going on there. But I think in the first place, Ellen Nice is is really trying to seduce Grace. She's trying to win Grace over and um, she wants to be a part of her world. And she knows that her sexuality, her body is just a way to make it happen more easily. She feels a connection between them and she knows it's true. And um, I think in the locker room is the first time that Grace senses that there is something more going on between them. And, 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 and we and us as spectators will feel that too. In, in something like that scene where there is so much going on, so many layers of meaning, yeah. um, what does a scene partner like Nicole Kidman do to help you, uh, you know, convey everything you want to convey? it's really easy to work with Nicole because um, she has an amazing instinct and she leads you and um, she leads you in the right direction every time. And every time is different. Every time um, is a new scene with her. And uh, it's interesting because I mean, she's always, 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 she's a, she's a very generous actress uh, and she gave me so much and that kind of freedom and that beautiful instinct that she has um, helped me a lot during every scenes we had together. To go back a little bit, what was your first impression of your character as you read her or maybe as you were auditioning? How did you understand her? Well, Elena is really complicated to know. Um, is a very complex character. She has so many layers and um, so many faces. But my first impression of her was um, she's a very lonely woman uh, with a very difficult life. And um, this fragility, this loneliness um, guides her in everything she does and the way she does it. And and then you, you, I understood that there was there was something more going on, you know, uh, under the surface of Elena. You can see her as a very provocative woman and uh, um, a bit of a femme fatale, but um, I think she's very fragile too and, and pure. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting. Elena is, is, has many, many faces, so it's, it's really complicated to know her. Uh, even even for me, even for me, I have to say, even for me. <laughs> so she, she's a complicated woman. She has all these different um, aspects, as you so beautifully describe. And you only have, um, you know, maybe barring some little moments here and there down the line, this one episode to make an impression on audiences. So what did um, you and Susanna discuss in order to ensure that all those different sides of Eleanor were shining through in this first episode? Yeah, that was the challenge, of course. Um, 
because we know Elena so briefly and then we know her through other people's eyes. And, um, but we wanted to build um, an extreme character. So we always try to push Elena to the extreme and then beyond the extreme. So in everything she does, um, she's always excessive. And, um, and I, I think that's the most important thing about Elena. And that's, um, what helps you to remember her. So, you know, um, in such a strong way, uh, that she's always excessive. And, um, and so me and Suzanne, we worked very much on that direction. Something that Suzanne said to describe the series which I find interesting is she's called it a dark fairy tale. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious what role you feel like your character has in this dark fairy tale. <laughs> I think um, she's a little lamb of the fairy tale. Oh. She's, a, she's a, yeah, she's really pure in the fairy tale. I think uh, um, Elena is a, is a good character. So she in in a way she doesn't even belong to this dark fairy tale i think she's a victim of this dark fairy tale <laughs> well thank you so much for for chatting and this incredible performance i think it's really, thank you. Thank you so much. really dazzling and i feel like a lot of people are going to be talking about it so thank you yeah thank you i hope so <laughs> thank you so much i'm claire fallon and i'm emma gray we're culture writers podcasters and hosts of the show love to see it Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. All right, I want to talk about, okay, uh, once again, it's inevitable, obviously, to uh, compare this to Big Little Lies, but it is fun to watch, having watched Nicole Kidman sit on the other side of the therapist's uh, couch uh, for a couple seasons on Big Little Lies, uh, it's fun to watch her play the therapist as as Grace uh, talks to these two different clients. Um, But once again, I will say, (laughs) I have yet to see a therapist, maybe just because... uh, Actual therapy might be really boring on screen. Um, I don't know what your experience... I know we both uh, have uh, enjoyed therapy in our lives. Um, I don't know what your experience with therapy is, Richard, but like I... The things that Grace says, I would never expect to hear a therapist say them. Uh, And I would say Robin Weger's character on Big Little Lies was even more extreme in terms of like the forcefulness of opinion. Um, so, so what do you think is, is grace, uh, a good therapist? Is she not, or is just like real therapy too boring to be, uh, in television? I think it's a, I think it's a little of the latter thing for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, my therapist that I, I'm not, he retired. I moved to Florida because I exhausted him, but, um, oh, no! <laughs> you burned uh, him out. I did, but yeah. you know, I was with him for seven years. Um, yeah. and he, I think that Grace said more in two sentences than than my uh-huh. therapist said concretely <laughs> in seven years combined. You know, like it. I think most talk therapy is about listening. You know, it's exactly. not. It's not yeah. about kind of like pers- you know defining yeah. a central tension or whatever, or essential neuroses or whatever. But um, but no, I mean, I think that like, but th- but but you know, I think the other difference there is that my therapy, my therapist was a social worker who I paid through insurance. You know, I paid a copay. Um, Grace is clearly priced out of that. You know, she's she does probably true. she's probably one of those fancy therapists that doesn't accept insurance, so you're paying out of pocket hundreds of dollars per hour um, for. And so, if you're getting if you're paying that, which becomes much more transactional, I think, which is illustrated in that scene with Tracy Chimo, um, you 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 want what you pay for. You want the heart. You want the thing to be said to you. Um, it, well, at least you think you do. Um, yeah, you know. I guess. Uh, yeah, my therapists are just usually. Uh... Uh, you know, they ask you questions to draw you further out. Um, 
maybe that's just my preferred style. Yeah, um, same. But I'm just sort of like when when Grace is like, well, let me tell you how it is. Or do you think you're doing this because of X, Y, Z? And you're like, oh, my gosh. All right. Well, uh, uh, but as she says in the episode, like um, they, they pay you for the truth and then they get upset when they hear them. So, you know. Um. All right. So let us talk about um, Hugh Grant uh, in this in this role. This is um, Hugh Grant doesn't do a lot of television. He obviously did a very English scandal kind of recently, and he and he he started uh, with with TV as often people do. But um, this feels like a real treat for us. Um, I'm a big. Um, not just because we're watching two Paddington villains, uh, be married to each other and bouncing off of each other, but just like the idea of getting that kind of like slippery Hugh Grant charm mm-hmm. for, um, a season of television, uh, is beyond exciting for me. Um, he's, yeah. he's, he's a hot, uh, a real highlight in this episode. Uh, his, his, what does he say? I wrote it down. Um, when they're about to get out to go, to walk into the auction, slump, dread, sob, despair, which is how I kind of want to, if we ever go back to parties, and then when I get tired of going to parties again, because I'm really an introvert, I'm just going to start saying slump, dread, sob, despair before I walk out of the uh, the the lift into the party um, and, and sort of uh, get myself ready to do what I have to do. Um how are you feeling about Hugh Grant here, Richard? Well, I, I just did want to correct you when you said that he doesn't do much television, because technically Cloud Atlas is an episode of Fringe. <laughs> it was not marketed as such in the United States, but it, it was part of that world. I'm pretty sure. Uh, okay. after, after watching that film, I mean, it has to be, right? Do you uh, mean Sense8? No, I'm, I meant... Oh, like you mean Fringe. Extra-dimensional okay. and weird. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um. No, I'm kidding. I actually, Cloud Atlas is an interesting movie, but and so is French. It's a good show, anyway. Um, but uh, I, I think that what the, the the ingenious bit of casting here is exactly that is that like we, he has his little probably half ad libbed Hugh Grantisms that really, w- coupled with the return of Nicole's curly red hair, were like kind of lulled into this like we know because we know what this show is generally about that we know that this is going to be like there's more to this than it seems and you know the the underbelly of the upper east side all that stuff but what what but still it's kind of darkly satisfying to have by the end of this episode the suggestion that the charmingly irascible british you know pediatric oncologist like might be doing something bad you know Mm -hmm. so he's perfect casting in that way because even though we know that his charm as sometimes kind of weaselly as it can be, is going to be subverted. It's still fun to watch it start to happen. Yeah. The, um, we get a few things at the end of the episode that, uh, you know, build the dread for us, right? We get, um, he's left his phone behind. <clears throat> what the heck? Uh, she calls around for him, uh, on his business trip. Can't find him, find someone with his name. It's not him. And also there's this, I'm just going to flag this dead dog incident <laughs> for, for sure. just, just to think about <laughs> because, uh, there seemed to be something made of it. Uh, so dead dog incident uh, from his childhood and this, this phone, uh, business travel stuff. So what's your, what are your, what are your theories so far, Richard? Where are you? Well, I mean, the phone wasn't left by the front door because he got distracted running to his car. You know, right. taking a last look at the um, at the, at the mirror. You know, um, uh-huh. it was like kind of buried in a nightstand drawer. So like that, there's that feels deliberate in some way. I don't know how, where mm-hmm. he stores his phone at night, but like that feels less uh, like a kind of thoughtless accident on his way uh, out of town uh, than something. It feels like something more purposeful. Um, so that's interesting. I I think obviously we are being led to suspect that there is some sort of infidelity maybe then we're supposed to jump to or maybe i'm just jumping to like well was that infidelity with elena is that why she is showing this interest in grace to kind of maybe get to know the quote the other woman or whatever um my hunch is that there will be more to it than that but um but yeah i think also like even though they're introducing all of this kind of fun you know betrayal potentially and you know, Hugh Grant's kind of darker side. 
we do crucially see the scene, which I believe is happening concurrently with Grace being at home, where he's kind of comforting that child in a very amiable, tartly British way, uh, who he pretty much knows is going to die, and then in fact does, and then he comes home very sad. You know, or at least we assume that's what's happened. Maybe he's just come back from killing Elena. I don't know, but um, so they're humanizing him while also um, indicating heavily mm-hmm. toward his villainy, which is which is fun. Yeah, and I mean, I I think the same is true for Elena. Like uh, to to my previous comment of like, I don't think, um, you know, whatever whatever. I think I think we've seen characters maybe this is just because I've spent too much time in We Are Who We Are, uh, the other show that we're covering right now, but I just I feel like there's a way to do her character and they're doing something more emotionally nuanced around it, which you would absolutely expect from Susanna Beer. Um not to mention a Davey Kelly, Nicole Kidman show. You know what I mean? Like let's let's not uh presume that we know who this woman is or who this who this man is. And I think that that's the, the main theme of the undoing so, something kind of uh, either cute or annoying that I asked several of our, uh, it, you know, interviewees over this is like what they think the title of the show is like, what is, what is being undone. And um, a lot of the answers have to do with like this idea of like, you think, you know, uh, where you are, who you are, what your world is. And then something can come along and undo that. So we are at the beginning of that journey. I want to talk about one last character uh, before we go to our interview with Susanna Beer, and that would be Edgar Ramirez uh, is here as an impossibly sexy <laughs> um, detective uh, here on the case. Um, I love Edgar Ramirez. I love him for this role. They were desperate to have him for this role. I think they like flew out uh, to wherever he was to like cajole him to do this uh, part. And I love that. I love that. Like, they yeah. were, like we must have Edgar. Um, I remember when the helicopter landed at our house. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> Edgar, I think this is for you. Because it usually is. When a helicopter lands on the lawn, it's like almost nine times out of 10 for him. Right. And the jets are for you, but the helicopters, that's it. Yeah, I'm just scared so, of helicopters, yeah. you know. <laughs> but yeah, um, uh, are you like, how are, how are you feeling about him in this role? Like, what is what is what is an Edgar Ramirez bring to our like fairly standard role of like homicide detective in a thriller uh, for you, Richard? Well, isn't it funny? Because didn't he also play this role in the girl in the window or whatever? No, the woman on the girl on the train, woman on the train. Who's on the train? Yeah. The wo- a woman was on woman, the train. A woman's in a window. And a oh, girl's and girl on a train, right? train. Yes, yeah. that's correct. Okay. Yes. Um, so confusing. But yeah, you know, so like, okay, he's maybe tread this ground a little bit before. But like, I think, um, you know, as much as we are reevaluating our relationship to police in dramatic stuff yes. in fiction, which which we should be uh, at uh, in this juncture and any other, um a story like this needs your Poirot, you know, it needs your kind of skeptical dashing, uh, could be, doesn't have to be a man necessarily, but, um, who clearly is from an out, from the outside and is looking at all of this with, um, a lot of skepticism, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I think about, uh, speaking of Hercule Poirot, uh, David Suchet, who played him, uh, in, mm-hmm. for years, um, has a great detective, uh, smaller role in a perfect murder. Another, Upper East Side murder mystery, well, not really murder mystery exactly, but thriller with Gwyneth Paltrow and Michael Douglas and Viggo Mortensen, where he's just kind of wryly observing like the trappings of wealth and how empty and horrible these people's lives are, uh, even though they seem to be living well. Um, so I feel like Ramirez might uh, function in the same way in this. Um, and I'm, yeah, I mean, that's a necessary kind of component of this classic kind of setup. Um, and even in that, you know, the brief ish scene where he and his partner interrogating Grace in her, you know, shabby chic kitchen. Uh, it, clearly, they're just a little bit like they find the whole world off. Mm-hmm. And because Grace is maybe more willing to talk to them, they go to her house, you know, than any of the other parents have been like, uh, clearly, they, I think they think they have like hooked into a, a good resource. Yeah. Um, it is interesting to me. um you know, you talked about earlier about how, like, Jan- Janelle Maloney's character has that great, like, Oprah moment where she was like, diversity! Uh, and then you look at a sea of white people. But, like, the non-white members of the cast so far 
are this detective and then Elena and her and her family, right? So it's, it's very much a like insulated white worlds. And here are, uh, you know, here are some figures, uh, knocking on the door and being like, um, you what's can't all this us. then <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what's all this then and we will not be ignored yeah. sort of thing so yeah. all right well let us go to our conversation uh with great Susanna beer uh, who was so lovely uh and, and talked to us for a while and um let's hear from her We are so thrilled to have on the podcast uh, Susanna Beer. Susanna, thank you so much for being here. I wanted to start by asking you, you know, when I hear David E. Kelly, Nicole Kidman, The Upper Crust, and Murder, I, of course, think of Big Little Lies. But I'm wondering, when this project came to you, you know, how much did you want to make it feel like it was in the Big Little Lies family? And how much were you interested in in making it something very distinct? Difficult to respond to that because... I am a huge fan of, of everything they've done before together. Mm-hmm. But I also felt that I came from such a different angle and I f- feel that my work is so different that I didn't really, I didn't really kind of, I didn't really set it up, but this is going to be different. I just set it up as this is what I think we should do. We should do a thriller and we should do something which is more of a clear thriller as opposed to that that sort of middle ground where, where, you know, I think Big Little Lies is so in, more in the space in between. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think this is more of a, almost like classical thriller. That doesn't mean that it doesn't have the character and psychology, um, but it's just, it's just always sort of part of that, um, of the thriller narrative. Were there any thrillers in particular, either film or television or or even a book, um, that you were particularly like, I want to go for that vibe specifically? I I was looking, I was looking, I did go back and look at Hitchcock, Mm -hmm. which I guess like, um, um, which I kind of frequently do, um, I guess it also had to do with the female protagonist. Um, so I did look at him. I wasn't thinking it should be him, also because that's like slightly pretentious ambition. Um, <laughs> but but um, I kind of thought I could learn a bit and be inspired a bit. Something that I thought was really interesting, you know, I talked to most of your cast um, earlier this week at the junket and something I thought that was really interesting that, that uh, Lily said was that she viewed both her character and Nicole's character as part of this world, but also operating slightly outside of this world. And so I'm wondering for, for Nicole's character specifically, you know, what is it about this beautiful, rich, white, uh, privileged woman that puts her in something of an outsider position? Or if you even agree with Lily and view her that way. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely agree with her. I mean, you know, we did it. We did very thorough research on the world. And we had like consultants who were kind of in, in like intrinsically involved in the world. So we kind of got into details of the exact right gym shoe, the exact right fitness, you know, every Mm -hmm. kind of very, very meticulous detail. And it was very important that both Lil's character and Nicole's character were sort of on the outside. And I want to say for for Grace, who, who Nicole plays, I think she was always someone who was, who, was brought up in the world and somewhat felt there was a coldness to it or that there was something which didn't quite sit well with her. And so she's become a therapist. She's married somebody who's British, whom we probably don't know a lot about. And 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 she kind of, her home is not, she doesn't have a huge staff in her house. She cooks herself. Mm-hmm. And actually the kitchen is something which is being used as an, as a, opposed to in a lot of the other 
um, homes. And um, and she dresses way more sort of bohemian. Yeah. She still dresses expensively. So so we don't, I mean, we don't fool ourselves as to think, you know, she hasn't gone out and, you know, you know, kind of, she hasn't thrown out her background, but she has defined herself as sort of, sort of being on, on, on the edge of it. Yeah, I was fascinated by the wardrobe. I think mm-hmm. it's a really interesting blend of like, obviously, extremely expensive. But as you say, these like vel- long velvet uh, coats and capes and all that sort of stuff is a really interesting visual in the gray sort of New York background. Yes, yeah. we clearly want and also having <clears throat> having her big red hair. And I mean, it was very we, we were clearly aiming for a kind of iconic clear image would would work when she walked the street would would which would have that sort of uh, which we would remember and also we didn't want her to look like a typical kind of upper east side if you can even talk about those but we just didn't want her to look predictable right Another thing that I thought was interesting that almost everyone talked to me about was sort of the difference between their original conception of the character and uh, Mm -hmm. your conception of the character and how you work together to sort of find something that that met in the middle. And I'm I'm just curious if you can recall... um, if there was one character that stood out to you as, as your idea being very different from the actor's original idea and sort of what, what you were very sure that you wanted. I think it's, a, I think it's probably a general thing, but I do think probably, um, um, I mean, because I, I do take liberties with the, um, with the writing. And so I, in general, I kind of, you know, I, and David Kelly's writing is beautiful and it's really works and it really works when you take liberties with it because it's so rich. Um, but I do kind of allow myself to kind of understand the writing in my own way. And I think that in general um, um, does leave a space where possibly the actors sort of possibly being more respectful Um um, tend to read the the scenes and and the dialogue more literal than I do. Mm. I kind of always look for the kind of core intention in a scene, and then whatever is not working in service of that, or where I feel that there are other ways of doing, I just do that. And and David was totally supportive of that. But I think you know, I think some of the cast took a little beat before they before they kind of embraced that way of working. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that makes sense. And, and they all, you know, for, for what it's worth, they all were very enthusiastic about where it all landed. Nobody was like, oh, Susanna wrestled me into submission or anything like that. Uh, <laughs> she, ruined the, she ruined the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, you know, having, having been a, a longtime fan of, of your films and, and your TV work, um, something you do that I absolutely love are these, um, something you're famous for are these shots uh, almost I don't I don't want to call them abstract uh, or expose the fact that I don't know what to call them, but you know, close-ups um, that are maybe unconventional, uh, close-up on objects, close-ups on uh, you know a wrist or whatever it may be that you know to indicate to the audience um, maybe a little bit more of the interior mind of of whoever we're watching. Um, I was wondering, you know, if you can describe at all your process and that, like how you come to those shot decisions you know and you're right I've, I've done it almost always but I, I mean certain cer- certain kind of material don't it doesn't lend themselves like in Bird Box I didn't do it but it, it, I didn't feel that the the situation or the story kind of was lending itself to doing it mm-hmm. this does um, and I guess it's a combination of being interior with the character in this case mostly Grace um, but it's also alienating yourself from the character because it's almost like you do when you're close enough to like, for example, a wrist or, or, or any sort of, any sort of particular 
on some somebody's face or somebody's body, it it stops being part of the of 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 the face. It becomes almost like a landscape, or it does something where it's an odd mixture between between understanding somebody's emotion, but also being slightly alienating. It can't kind of. I always feel that a bit of suspicion creeps in at that point. Mm. Mm. And, um, and I just like using it. It, it. it feels like a natural, for me, it's a very natural tool to use. But like all tools, they've got to sit in the right place. Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. Um, that alienating, you know, there is something about this show, uh, which you know I know is intentional because that's what a thriller does. That just puts me on edge. I'm never comfortable watching it, <laughs> which, which <laughs> you know is the point. Um, but it's hard to pin down exactly what's generating that feeling, and so that's interesting to to think about those camera movements doing that. Um, I, I, you know, I heard from a couple of your actors that, you know, you reached out maybe directly to ask them to be part of this project. Were you, were you involved with the casting, you know, from the jump, everything post Nicole, like where, where did you come in on that? Yeah. Everything post Nicole. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, and, 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 and very, very strongly uh, involved in the casting. I kind of, that's, I want to say that that's probably what I do the most ferociously is sort of put myself in a position of of of, of being clear about the casting because you know the cast defines what kind of show it is what kind of and so I need to do that I don't think I could come on to something which was already cast that I would find that. I don't think I would ever, um, I would ever define the uh, my artistic vision if that was the case. Yeah, th- no, that makes a lot of sense to me. And so, for someone like Hugh Grant, I, you know, I think everyone has been very careful about not spoiling me on anything. I don't know anything past episode five, so I promise I'm not digging for any spoilers or answers or anything like that. But I'm curious in casting. Hugh in this role, like what were the qualities um, that he brought to this that you were most eager for him to use? I think part of Hugh's like even very early success was this sort of, you know, the fun, the charm, the wit, the beauty, all of that. But an undercurrent of something dark, something, and I really don't mean anything sinister. I just mean something sad or something, some like there is a kind of melancholic side to him, which, which is very, very prevalent and have always been there. And I guess I wanted to possibly tilt the balance a bit um, with this show. So some of that, some of that sadness had more space and I think it's really interesting because because once it has more space then you realize that part of part of what has driven him as an actor is you know like he's so angry with himself in a very funny way and he's always been there's always been that self-irony which is but it comes from that place in in a very palatable way and it's it's kind of interesting being more aware of it um which this shows kind of is I mean that part of what fuels him as an actor mm. is some sort of ang- anger with himself, which then makes him incredibly creative and incredibly, incredibly kind of innovative. And and you know he's amazing at improvising, and he's amazing at kind of finding out kind of weird stuff. And I think part of that creativity and part of that energy comes from some kind of annoyings with himself and um and and so I just think it's it's kind of fun to work with him because of that because you kind of laugh because he he kind of makes jokes about it and then you realize Mm -hmm. that that is part of his artistic fuel Mm -hmm. no that makes a lot of sense to me um something I'm very curious about given that this show deals with 
these stratas of class and certain characters sort of permeating levels of society that they might otherwise be shut out of, et cetera. Um, what do you think of this show airing now uh, in late October, November uh, versus back in the spring when it was originally supposed to drop sort of in what I like to call the before time <laughs> and when we were a very different audience, <laughs> it feels like then. <laughs> so, so what do you make of, of that, of those differences? In audience I mean if we talk about the pandemic it kind of gives it like a kind of weirdly delicious nostalgic um, veneer um, hmm. because there is a kind of you know it was funny I I when 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 the world closed down I went back to Copenhagen and then we kind of kept working and we kept working long distance and uh, and it was kind of okay. And then when 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 we could travel again, which we could like since August, I went back and we actually mixed the whole um, series. And I was watching this, and it I just had that odd feeling of nostalgia watching it, um, which was really interesting. Yeah, uh, because it was I mean it was really last year, and <laughs> but like sitting in the cinema and kind of recognizing you know, the world is slightly different. So that's the one part of it. But I'm supposing you are talking about other than the pandemic as well, correct? Right. I mean, definitely the pandemic is part of it. But also, um, you know, I do think it's interesting who in this story uh, is white and who in the story is not, you know? Well, I mean, that's a sort of reflection upon society absolutely um yeah. which and it, and particularly upon that strata in society and what i do think because you know i think the the, the show has a kind of slightly sarcastic take on that um very rarefied lavish world right. i mean it, it does sort of make fun of it it does sort of make fun of you know at the fundraiser, you know, they kind of joke about, we want our school to be diverse. And then we look at all those white parents. Oh, right. Um, <laughs> and, and, um, but I think on a, in a deeper way, and, and I want to say, which is something which David Tell is very kind of uh, preoccupied with. It sort of also addresses um, the injustice of the justice system. Mm. Um, particularly personified by by Edgar Ramirez's character, who comes off as as kind of unfriendly with with Nicole, but it's very clear that his fed upness has to do with with being so so tired of white privilege not being collaborative. He's investigating a, a terrible crime. And he feels that because of because of the because of their social status, they are somewhat untouchable, and it kind of really makes him angry. And you feel that throughout the entire series. But I don't want to pretend that it's it's the core of a series. I don't want to pretend that it's no. sort of right. um, because it's not. It's clearly a psychological thriller, but it's an undercurrent, and it's quite an important undercurrent. I want to ask you a question that uh, might strike you as a little silly, but I've been really interested in people's responses to this question. So I'm going to try it on you, which is um, what do you, what do you feel like the title means the undoing? What is, what is undone by uh, this story? Um, Trust. Trust. I want to say. Oh, that's good. I like that. Mainly um, as it applies to to Grace and Nicole's character, or oh, it's not entirely true for every single one of them, but I want to say for all the main characters, there is an element of of trust being undone, mm. and um, yeah, I think that's if you want to kind of 
the simplest and 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 sort of the core answer that would be it. And then I could probably elaborate on that for for longer. But but um, I think that's pretty much what I think is being undone. There's a lot of other things being undone as well, but that one is the most important. All right, Richard, is there anything else you want to say about this first episode of The Undoing? I didn't do it. Wasn't you? Nope. Promise. Can Edgar Ramirez give you an alibi? Hold on. Ed- Edgar, what do you think? <laughs> oh, he's nodding. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Edgar Edgar provides your alibi. That's yeah. great. Uh, all right, Richard, until uh, we put you back on the stand next week, uh, where can people find you? I don't know. Edgar, where are we going to be? Oh right, yeah, we're going. To, we're going to the Hamptons. So, uh, oh, yeah. Okay. Obviously. So we'll be there, and uh, but I'll be tweeting at Rylaws, writing reviews and stuff at vf.com. Sonia Soraya, our TV critic, has a review of the Undoing up, uh, I believe. And uh, yeah, Joanna, until we uh, get back on that four train, where are you going to be? Oh, I will obviously be in the darkest, deepest recesses of Sookie's closet. Right. <laughs> Clutching <laughs> Whatever's David going Hockney, on in there, <laughs> <laughs> trying to get out of the apartment with your stolen goods. <laughs> Uh, you can also find me on vanityfair.com uh, or on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. And we will further try to figure out who who done it next week.